And I started having more and more conversations with coworkers who were having the same experience of, I thought I saw the hardest patient case six months ago and this past week just did me in. I don't know what to do with this because I haven't dealt with this before. And there was just sort of this befuddlement of what do we do? What space do we have? And even to this day, I still have conversations with coworkers who say, I'm so close to my mom or I'm so close to, um, you know, just the closest people in our lives who are for us in every way, but who really don't know what to do with the grief that we carry at work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, friends who would say, I tend to uh, call my parent uh, every time I drive home from work just because we're that close. But if I mention that I've had a bad shift, they just don't know what to do with it. And I think that there's sort of this, well, you chose this job and, you know, Mm. you're the one who's wired for it. So suck it up kind of attitude a little. Yeah. I mean, maybe not that harsh. Yeah. But, yeah. but at, at the end of the day, I mean, I think that is really the ask of a lot of our, um, even yeah. our closest uh, people is, well, this is what you chose. This is your yeah. job. So yeah. I can't, yeah. this is not what I chose. So I, I can't hear it. I don't want to hear about it. Can't help you. <laughs> Hey friends, it's your host, Lisa Kefauver here. Welcome back to another episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. Just in case you're new to the show, yes, it's a podcast all about grief, exploring the expansiveness and pervasiveness of grief in our lives because, well, let's face it, 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives. So together, we're going to reimagine grief one conversation at a time. I'm so glad you're here. What a beautiful conversation I'm bringing you today. What must it be like to be a pediatric ICU nurse day in and day out, witnessing children and families in the most vulnerable and often grief-filled moments of their lives? Today's guest, Wei Wen Sato, weaves a beautiful narrative about the realities of professional grief and the important cultural shifts needed to better serve both families and the medical professionals that serve them. She also opens up about the personal resources she draws on to sustain her in this work and the role of storytelling as healing for all involved. And as the title of this episode implies, She also implores us to stop putting healthcare workers on a pedestal. I can't wait for you to meet her. Hello. Hi. Wei Wen, welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm so thrilled to have you here and looking forward to this conversation today. Thank you so much for having me. So, listeners, You're in for a treat today. Uh, I first discovered Wei Wen when I saw her TED Talk, How Grief Helped Me Become a Better Caregiver, a while back, maybe a few years now, and then 
came into contact with you, Wei Wen, and we've had already probably two podcasts worth of conversations <laughs> off the air. But I said, let's let's come in today and have this conversation. We're going to explore grief, professional grief, palliative, ICU, sort of culture, medical culture. We're going to get into some really important, beautiful topics today. But I'd love to start our conversation today where I do all of my guests, and that's helping to unpack sort of your early informative grief beliefs. So can you just invite us a little bit to the best of your recollection? What was an earliest memory of loss? And what do you think you witnessed or learned about grief from that time in your life? Hmm. You know, the the earliest memory I have is uh, when I was in elementary school, I must have been in about fourth grade or so. And my dad had surprised us with a pet rabbit. It was our first real pet. We were so excited to have this sweet living creature that we could take care of. And we had, we, we just had a lot of fun with her. Her name was Lucky. And so we would keep her in her little cage um, in the garage at nighttime. And then during the day, we would open the gate of her cage and let her run around the backyard. And she'd just run around all day. We'd go out and play with her. And then uh, when the day would be done, we would go chase her um, until she was tired and then put her back in her cage for the night. And I remember one summer afternoon, we had actually, for some reason, we had put the cage outside the garage. And I can't even remember why. We had put the cage outside and uh, we just midday happened to go outside to do whatever we were doing in the backyard. And we realized that Lucky had actually gone back into the cage but then the door had shut behind her and she had gotten just, she was stuck in her cage and the cage yeah. was directly in the sun. And as a result, um, she died. We found her in her cage. She was already gone and it must have been heat stroke. Yeah. And so we were completely stunned. And I remember finding her crying out for my parents and my mom came over and I was already just sobbing. And I looked up at my mom and I said, why did she have to die? And I remember looking at my mom's expression of not just sorrow and surprise at lucky dying, but her shock at my question. And she was clearly very, very unprepared for me to ask that. And I, I don't remember her giving any response. I just remember this look of shock on her face, this look of, I didn't see this question coming and I don't have an answer. And that's yeah. kind of all I remember. We we went through the motions of burying Lucky in the backyard, but it was all, the response of it all was very pragmatic, just well, she died, and so we'll bury her. But there were no subsequent conversations about how it felt to lose our first pet and um, that question that I had thrown out there, why? I mean, to my parents' credit, you know, they didn't get overly uh, practical in terms of trying to blame us. You know, you should have kept an eye on her or you should have, you know, this or that. But it was very pragmatic and just not a lot of reflection or talking about the actual experience of what it felt like to lose her. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'm sure a lot of our listeners can relate and, mm. and myself included that um, for many of us, our pet loss is a first loss, but also I think to something that you pointed out, which I know you and I've talked about before, which is sort of culturally, we're not prepared to talk about these hard things. We've sort of culturally writ large and then in all these different systems, including parenthood. So, you know, having some grace and compassion for our parents for not knowing what to say or being prepared mm-hmm. for that conversation, because in some ways, how could they have been? Because probably their parents weren't prepared for that conversation. Mm-hmm. And it's not like we're, you know, living in this space and this community and this culture that encourages that. Mm-hmm. But I appreciate you sharing that and just helping us begin to recognize that we form grief beliefs, even if what we're learning is to not think about grief or to not process grief or to not acknowledge grief. You know, so mm. sometimes I think we think about our grief beliefs in terms of, oh, in my family, we were discouraged to not show emotions or this, you know, sp- specific rituals. But I think in some ways what we've learned, many of us, is the is the just not attending to grief, not talking about it, not thinking about it and death, grief and death and really any hard things, you know, as we call it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. You know, from that, I think the learned, what I learned then was, well, grief is just about being practical. You know, you still have to live your life, which we do in the presence of grief, but you don't let it really get in the way of your life. You know, you just kind of do what you have to do. And so in this case, what you do is bury the rabbit and then you just Go 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 about your day. Yeah. 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 Oh, I appreciate that. And I know this is sort of foreshadowing of some of the conversations that are going to continue. I want to sort of invite you to think about sort of whenever I have someone on the show who is bringing their professional lens to the conversation around grief and loss, palliative hospice, all the kind of expansive conversations we have on the show, I'm always curious to ask if you can draw a through line or a thread of what brought you into the profession. So you, our listeners have heard you're an ICU nurse, whether or not it ties to that, of course, early pet loss experience. But can you tell us a little bit about how you got into nursing or maybe even sort of what you felt that, what was that internal calling or passion that led you to say, this is, you know, the profession, the vocation that, that I want to spend my career in? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I find it really curious because even as you are asking that question and phrasing it as a through line, I'm kind of realizing, I'm realizing what it is as as I'm thinking through your question. So as a young child, I actually really wanted to be a counselor or a therapist. My parents weren't really big fans of that idea for various reasons. And so I kind of um, tucked that away as not an option. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they really wanted me to be a physician. And so I started to study biology and head in that direction. As I meandered through sort of my uh, professional journey and questions, for a while I did research. Um, First, it was doing research, doing uh, health education among the Hmong community. Mm. So we were doing a lot of breast cancer education for this community that is illiterate. And so we're using a lot of pictorial type of educational materials. And I loved the vision of it, but I was just in an office the whole time. And I 
did all the administration and developed materials, but I never actually met a Hmong person. I never interacted with anyone from the community itself. It was all the staff that I was managing who were out uh, meeting the people and engaging with them. And uh, I just started to feel really detached and I wanted connection. And so then I I was studying public health at the time. Then I moved on to um, do research in nursing homes. And this was really wonderful because we were doing a lot of hands-on care with the frail elderly. So a lot of toileting, exercise, feeding interventions. But even that, as it was very hands-on, it was still very limited and prescribed by the research stipulations. Mm. And so we could only go so far in our interactions with um, these long-term care residents. And again, I started to feel a little bit of the stifling of I'm, I'm missing the connection that I want. And uh, I finally, long story short, kind of got thrown into a crossroads of do I want to continue in research or do I want to pursue something different? And I just realized this was kind of my opportunity, um, the timing in life to, to go a different direction. And so that's when I decided to go into nursing because I really wanted more of that hands-on care and connection, even more than what the research was allowing me to do. And so I bit the bullet and went back to school. And looking back, I always say, I, I think I always knew I wanted to be a nurse, but just didn't fully realize it until I got here. And yeah. uh, this is where I belong. This is um, absolutely the right profession for me. That's phenomenal. And I want to talk in a little bit about sort of helping paint a picture of what it means to be an ICU nurse, including beginning to sort of unfold the the grief that you're witnessing among patients and families and, and of course, among yourself. But I just have to give a shout out to that sort of through line. I, I think it's such an interesting exercise. You know, my friend John Powell, who I've had on the show, when I asked him about sort of, do you think you were always on that path or the memory, you know, he reminded me that, you know, we're, of course, storying creatures. So mm-hmm. we can build a thread or a through line in lots of ways. And I think there's something really interesting to have that exercise of thinking about, are there some underlying core values or passions or curiosities that we've had? And anytime we're at a crossroads to come back to that place, Mm -hmm. I always thought I was going to be a counselor or a therapist when I was young and then sort of got into undergrad and then got my first job as a researcher and then kept doing research, but it kept nagging at me. Similar, actually very similar path. Mm -hmm. I did research all through my twenties until I finally sort of was at a crossroads. And it was actually when I was first together with my late husband and said, babe, I got to quit my job and go back to school (laughs) and become a social worker. Mm -hmm. And he just looked at me and was like, Yes, you do. Of course. I, yeah, I got, I get that, you know? Mm -hmm. So anyways, just as a reminder, I say that, especially as we, I know so many grievers and people working in the helping professions listen to the show is this exercise of returning sort of to our core values and core curiosities in some ways, I think is the, I'm hesitant to use this word gift of grief, Mm -hmm. but I think when we can kind of return over to that again, it helps give us some sense of what's What's the next step? Mm -hmm. So having said all that, you sort of made that leap, or maybe it felt like inevitability to becoming a nurse. And I know you do different 
probably placements or I don't know if it's called residencies like it is in, you know, physician training. But how did you end up in ICU nursing? And can you, for those of us who haven't been in that space, what is it, what is it, can you bring us into the experience of ICU nursing for a little bit to just help us understand the position you're in when we're thinking about the grief that you're facing and witnessing and supporting? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that question. Uh, when I was in nursing school, as you said, you know, there were a lot of different rotations that we went through. So there's anything from labor and delivery to a uh, surgical floor where they might see a lot of post-operative patients, uh, maybe a little further out from their surgeries to, yeah, we did some rotations through ICUs. We did some psych facilities. So we were able to get a glimpse of all these different kinds of nursing. and. I mean, all of them are really, really interesting in their own right. But I remember the general rule of thumb was, oh, most new nurses don't start off in ICU. Most nurses should just get their skills down, get their time management down. And a lot of that, you know, the presumption is you learn that on the normal surgical floors. So I didn't really go in with a big expectation to start in ICU. But then I remember when I, did my rotation in the pediatric ICU where I am now, as soon as I was there, I I knew it was home. That was the fit for me. And it was because there is such a incredible focus on just your one to two patients that fortunately here with our nurse to patient ratio laws in California, we're able to only have a maximum of two for ICU and it was the in-depth focus that we got to have, not just on our patient's physiology, but also their entire story and being present with this one patient and their family for the entire 12-hour shift. I have tremendous respect for the nurses who um, work the surgical floors, who have the four to six patients. Their skill level is a whole different level that I just, I don't have. For me, I'm somebody who just likes to go really deep and likes to feel very, very present. And that was ICU for me. And I was fortunate enough to have a clinical instructor who recognized the fit with my personality. And so she really advocated for me to be able to do, at the end of nursing school, this 300-hour preceptorship. And that not only gives you a much more involved learning experience, but it is in some sense an interview with the unit that you're going to go into. You know, if they watch you and they like you, then that's likely where you're going to get hired. And so ICU, the depth of it just won me over from the beginning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And in particular, pediatric ICU, it sounds like. Yeah. There was something about the, not just the vulnerability of the kids, but, uh, the, I, I just want to say the sacredness of caring for yeah. children. You know, there's something about it that just really drew me. And knowing also that it's about caring for the parents. Um, I'm not actually a very playful person. And so um, I wouldn't do well as a teacher, I don't think. <laughs> I wouldn't do well <laughs> with a, a loud, rowdy group of kids. But but to care for a child who is critically yeah. ill and to also be present with their parents and walk with them through 
a time of crises, through a time of deep processing, a time of deep grief, and be a presence with them. That was just something that was very intuitive to me, even before I had kids of my own. And so for all those reasons, it just, it just fits so well. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. When we come back, I ask Wei Wen what she's learned explicitly and implicitly from her supervisors, from colleagues, about the role of holding space, bearing witness, and what grief looks like in its anticipatory stage. If you're looking for more grief support and education, or just curious what I'm up to outside of the show, sign up for my not-so-regular newsletter today by visiting lisakefoffer.com forward slash newsletter. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com forward slash newsletter. Why not so regular? Because grief isn't on a schedule and neither is this newsletter. Felt like a right fit. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can appreciate that. And that that was really required you to sort of have an inner knowing or to have a real Mm -hmm. sort of connection to what feels like sort of a place or a space that brings my highest and best self to bear. Mm. I'm curious, as you said about this training and the preceptorship, I've had doctors, palliative social workers, as you know, our friend, our mutual friend, Rachel Rush, who is on the show Mm -hmm. sharing her wisdom about improv lessons and grief. So I've asked this of each, just sort of, as you think about your training in those days, whether it was in school or the preceptorship, what do you think you learned explicitly, implicitly, either from your supervisor or others about the role of holding space, bearing witness, what grief looks like in its anticipatory stage? What did you learn in that time? Because it sounds like you came in with a lot of intuitive knowing, Mm -hmm. sort of some inner knowing, but I'm curious, how did that match or not with sort of what you were learning educationally? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because for as much as I thought that nursing was going to let me be really, really present, what I actually began to realize as I was going through my preceptorship was that it was very, very difficult to be present as a nurse, even with the one-to-one or one-to-two ratio. And the reason being because the demand on nurses now, and especially in the ICU, our our physical care is so involved. The way that we coordinate care with other specialties and people who come in and out of the room, it can be so busy. We're just so busy doing so many things that it's actually really, really difficult to slow down and be as present as I thought we could be. And so in my preceptorship, I don't get me wrong, I had excellent role models, very, very compassionate people, and very skilled nurses, but we just were busy, busy people. And I realized that part of what I was going to have to learn and use my intuition on was not only learning the skills so that I could do the physical care, but to learn how to 
do those skills efficiently and carefully, also learn how to prioritize and manage my time so that I could find or create some intentional space to be present the way I wanted to be, because I realized it wasn't going to happen on its own. And Mm. so sometimes it was just, okay, I know I have this kind of 20 minute window where all my main tasks are done. And I could easily fill those 20 minutes with many other different tasks or just sitting down outside, which sometimes I do just need a break. Absolutely. And those I have to give to myself as well. But there are times when I just realized I could choose to sit and be present and engage my patient if they're conscious and alert or engage the family members, or I could not. And I think we learned a lot of delegating and outsourcing, which is very important. We love our chaplains and social workers and child life specialists who are really wonderful at being very present I wanted that as a nurse too. I still want that. I don't want to be so overrun by just the tasky work that I lose that connection that I, that's been my through line. That's why I came into nursing. I don't want to lose that. And it's, it's a battle. It's hard to find. Yeah. Well, I think we'll probably touch on this later. I'm I'm sort of in my mind, sort of shuffling through. There's just so much beauty that you brought up. I think we'll touch on later, maybe sort of the grief in the sort of dream of medicine versus the reality of medicine. But maybe if we could sort of just pivot a little bit to think about now we kind of can picture the life of you, the life of a pediatric ICU nurse, kind of the challenges of you know, you're tasked to heal, to fix, to save. It's quite tactical. And of course, we love that about our nurses and physicians that they have the skills to do that. But I wonder what you're discovering. Do I have it right? You're 10 years into this? Do I, Am I making up that number? Yeah, I'm actually coming up on 12 years. Okay, yeah. 12 years into yeah. this. What are you starting to unpack around sort of the challenges, of course, of our larger culture, but also maybe our medical culture on acknowledging the realities of grief in your profession, in part because of some of the ethos that go into medicine, like, you know, sort of, again, to be a saver or a fixer or a healer. Mm -hmm. What are you, what are you starting to uncover, sort of grapple with about the, the maybe difficulty of those containers of the medical culture container? And yeah, I think that there's this really interesting assumption that goes into what we think about the people who choose these kinds of professions, that these are the people who, from the very beginning, just kind of know what to do with all of these heavy stories and know exactly how they're going to manage all the grief that's going to come their way. And to some degree, that's right in that there are people who just fundamentally are not wired for this kind of work. They're, they're just not. And, and that's fine. You know, they're wired to do the important work that they do in other fields. But that being said, I think that there's too much an assumption that we just know how to carry it all and that we should Mm -hmm. be the ones to carry it at all. And we should be the only ones to carry it all. And I think that historically has been a a prizing of stoicism in healthcare, that the strongest and most stable are really just the most stoic. And uh, they're just kind of unmoved by it. And that's 
those are the strongest. <laughs> and that's uh, who we sort of put up on a pedestal as a, as a model for mm-hmm. a good healthcare worker. Mm-hmm. Is that, I mean, is that fair? Yeah, it is yeah. fair. And again, there is a certain degree of accuracy to that because when you are in the middle of a patient's crisis and emergency, you have to keep your head on straight. Like you have to be able to manage. We want that. We want that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to just say, well, everyone's human. So everyone's allowed to just fall apart and, (laughs) you know, like cry in a corner. I mean, that's just, that's, that's also not appropriate for the task at hand. But I think we go to extremes a little bit too much of just, well, that's how Mm -hmm. we assume people function. That's how they should always function. And that's what they present as strength. And I think that as I experienced my own confronting with grief and just, I'm overwhelmed. I'm not okay today with what I just saw in my shift yesterday or five days ago. And I started having more and more conversations with coworkers who were having the same experience of, I thought I saw the hardest patient case six months ago and this past week just did me in. I don't know what to do with this because I haven't dealt with this before. And there was just sort of this befuddlement of what do we do? What space do we have? And even to this day, I still have conversations with coworkers who say, I'm so close to my mom or I'm so close to, um, you know, just the closest people in our lives who are for us in every way, but who really don't know what to do with the grief that we carry at work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, friends who would say, I tend to uh, call my parent uh, every time I drive home from work, just because we're that close. But if I mention that I've had a bad shift, they just don't know what to do with it. And I think that there's sort of this well, you chose this job and, you know, Mm. you're the one who's wired for it. So suck it up kind of attitude a little. I mean, maybe not that harsh, but (laughs) But at at the end of the day, I mean, I think that is really the ask of a lot of our, um, even our closest uh, people is, well, this is what you chose. This is your job. So I can't. Yeah. This is not what I chose, so I I can't hear it. I don't want to hear about it. Can't help you. Yeah. Oh, I'm, that's so heartbreaking and not surprising. Mm-hmm. This isn't unsimilar to social workers mm-hmm. and other helping professions. And even I'm thinking about, I had a conversation with Ashley Cansolo, who is a ecological scientist working with the Inuit population in Northern Labrador. We had that conversation here on the podcast and she spoke too about the profound professional grief that so many scientists are experiencing in the wake of, you know, populations that they loved, which is why they went into studying it that are disappearing Mm. sort of in the wake of climate change or whatever is happening. And that same kind of like well, you went into this profession and also, which I think is maybe similar to medicine, you know, science is, you know, rational and mm. clinical and not emotional and that there's there's no space as if we must be, you know, sort of robots. And I think what you alluded to earlier is like there are spaces and places where we want our scientists and our doctors and our nurses and our healthcare workers to have that 
stoicism in the sense that it, they are keeping their stuff together and using their skills. Mm-hmm. And mm. you can't be expected to be that version of yourself all the time, mm-hmm. because I wonder what you're seeing or witnessing either personally or sort of writ large among your colleagues or, or broader there's a degradation that happens to the human soul, which makes it that much harder to get back into that stoic, active crisis handling space. What, how would you begin to describe sort of the wear and tear, sort of psychologically, emotionally, maybe physiologically, mm-hmm. from holding that without a place to set it down? Because it's not that we're saying nurses and healthcare workers shouldn't hold it. Of course, you're going to hold it. But then where are you being given permission to set it down or for somebody else to help hold the weight? Mm-hmm. How would you begin to help us understand what that looks and feels like, the the spaces for holding it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate that question because I think that there is this, this sense that because our friends and family let us know in one way or another, you know, I, I can't hear those stories. I can't hear what you deal with at work. We feel like we have to take care of them too and protect them too. And so we're holding so much at work for our patients and their families, which we should because yeah. we're their caregivers. Yeah. But um, if we're also not allowed to set things down with those who are for us in every other way, every, every other area of our life. And we're also having to take care of or protect our friends and family. Then even outside of work, we're saying, well, I guess I'll just keep holding this myself too. And I'll keep taking care of myself. And there's no space to be taken care of. There's no space to say, just like any other human being, I hurt too. And I don't, you know, there's the superhero narrative. I don't operate yeah. as a superhero. I am human and I can pull out the strong parts of me when it's needed at work. But as a full, complete human who feels and is moved by stories and is worn down and needs a soft place to land, when it's hard to find that with uh, those who are closest to us and we don't find safe spaces, then we run out of personal resources after a certain point. You know, our tanks only go yeah. so far for caregiving. And if it also includes the lonely job of trying to care for ourselves because no one else can do that for us, then we only hold so much ability to give and yeah. give and give and give and give and try to give to ourselves and not ever receive yeah. from the people around us. Yeah. That's so profound. And I think so many people who've been in a caregiving role professionally, like you have, and or personally for family members or friends can relate to this. And there's a little bit of this double-edged sword in a way that I, to your point about the superhero narrative, it's like, we also get reinforced and celebrated as being, you know, superhuman or altruistic, or I don't know how you do it. That's amazing. And then there's this sort of isolating feedback loop, which says sort of like, oh, my value is in holding all of this to myself so that I don't sort of get it on other people or sort of get the messiness of of what this experience is like on other people. Mm -hmm. 
I wonder what tools or experience you've begun to discover either sort of at the individual level or sort of around colleagues, or if you have even about how have you learned to maybe create spaces to set things down. And when I say set it down, I don't mean numb out or although, look, we all need our good Netflix, you know, binge, if that's what (laughs) you, you know, it's like, that's good. That's cool. But what have you discovered or learned that helps you I would say set down or maybe even metabolize or process kind of mm-hmm. all that you've been taking in. What what are you discovering in your nearly 12 years that is helping you, helping your colleagues do that? Yeah. Yeah. As a, uh, as somebody who really loves what the superhero narrative does for my ego, as somebody, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's a I mean, confession. I mean, we all want to be, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love being seen that way. And, and uh, to my detriment at, you know, to, to yeah. a certain degree. So I'm wired to be a caregiver. I am type A. I feel over responsible for most things, most people in my life. So this kind of came to a head, you know, certainly after I had my two kids and, and just everywhere I went at work, you know, we're doing the work we do as I see nurses and I come home and then I'm on mommy duty taking care of my two young daughters. And um, there's no there's nowhere to to really sit. <laughs> and yeah. uh, I remember literally or mm-hmm. emotionally. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm just always on call for everyone's needs around me. And uh, I remember one evening sitting down with sitting <laughs> with a, a group of girlfriends who saw me kind of starting to crumble under all the weight of it. And I just was saying, I am so beyond exhausted. I'm irritable with everybody. I, I I don't know how to keep doing this. And they, they said to me, you need to, you need to go on a retreat. Like when was the last time you just let yourself go somewhere and not be responsible for anyone and just rest? And, uh, I, I'm an introvert too, and I thrive <laughs> on quiet and lack of chaos. And my home life is full of chaos and noise and my work life is full of chaos and noise. And so they said, you, you need to schedule a personal retreat. And so my first response was, okay, well then I'll find a hotel that's 10 minutes from home so that if my family <laughs> needs anything from me, then I can quickly just pick up and get to them in 10 minutes and take care of whatever they need yeah. me for. And my friends looked at me and said, no, 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 <laughs> you need to go away. That's not a retreat. That's not a retreat. Yeah. You need to go away. Let your husband take care of things, which I recognize is a real um, luxury, you know, to be able to even have that as an option. And they said, you need to just let other people take care of things and you need to go and you need to rest. And uh, so I found a place. It's about a two hour drive from here. And uh, I can just rent a little private cottage. It's tiny. It's enough for just one person. And now it's become, I do it about twice a year. I go for two nights, three days, and I just literally sit and do just about nothing. Um, It's up on sort of a mountain area and I can see the valley below. And I have sat for many, many hours on a bench just watching the hawks fly. I watch the sunset and I just watch the world be beautiful without my help. And I let my Mm. kids be taken care of without my help. And 
And I go specifically to wrestle with the hard things. And it doesn't mean I, you know, sometimes I do just kind of space out and take in the beauty of nature. But there are times if Mm -hmm. I go, I just listen to what I need. And so if I just need a really, really good cry, I will go and I will just let myself cry and cry until that's out. If I need to write and journal and process all that's kind of tangled up in my head, then I'll do that. And sometimes I just need to be outside, um, just taking in beauty and moving instead of moving in beautiful spaces as opposed to moving for the sake of other people. Um, And Mm. so I just pay attention to where I am each time I go on these retreats. And I try to just really tend to that and give myself all the freedom to do all of that. Um, and that's been really helpful, but I think it's helpful because it's very intentional. I don't go to escape per se, but to let myself tend to what it is that I actually need in the moment. Mm. Oh my word. There's so much beauty in what you shared, including the sort of like, let myself witness beauty without doing anything Mm. for it, you know, and just, I've been thinking and sort of contemplating a lot lately and was in conversation with another guest recently about the power of awe mm-hmm. and wonder to quiet our ego and our busy minds and to reconnect us with our sort of perspective and our shared humanity and even to sort of regulate our parasympathetic nervous system, you know, the part of us that needs to be in action when we are in healing, you know, mm-hmm. so... I love that part of your exploration of how you set down or metabolize all of the grief and the perhaps maybe even trauma that you witness is to really include something like awe and wonder um, in that practice. I think that's really, Mm. yeah, really beautiful. Mm. I love that. I also wonder too, you know, Again, you and I have talked in previous conversations off the air about kind of the challenge of systems sometimes to hold all of this. You know, that was a very individual response that you took. But I also wonder about kind of the systemic response or lack of it, including things like back to what we were talking about, which is sort of like, how do we begin to set down? It's my job to fix everything and control everything and move into a space of kind of a space of acceptance that I can't, including fix other people's grief because grief is not a problem to be fixed. Mm -hmm. What have you learned about that as you've tried to, you know, be present as you walk alongside families who are grieving, tangled up maybe with your own grief and the letting go of the sort of very tempting fix-it narrative that kind of overtakes all of us, by the way, not just if you're a healthcare worker, but I mean, we live in a fix-it culture, that's for sure. When we come back, I asked Jue Wen what she's learned about the role of acceptance and if she notices showing up in those spaces differently in year 12 as compared to her first year as a pediatric ICU nurse. Y'all, I love hosting this show. I learn something each episode from my incredible guests like Wei Wen. I'm hoping you do too. If you love the show, please leave a rating and write a review. It sure would mean the world to me. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver.
What have you learned about that role of acceptance and and how you're showing up in those spaces differently? Maybe, you know, in year 12 differently than you were in year one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. I I certainly went into nursing um, wanting to be a part of people's healing, of course, right? That's, that is the overarching goal of healthcare. But I think that we still see it as, for the most part, unidirectional, like healing, what does healing actually mean? It means getting better from the sickness and going back to a normal life of wellness and your everyday everything. And independence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that, you know, if something doesn't feel right at home, well, we go to the doctor so that they can fix it and get us back on the road to doing all the things we want to do. And I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to help heal. And I think that as we started to, as I started to see the number of patient deaths that we saw in our unit, some expected, some unexpected, some slow, some sudden, um, or I started to see the range of chronic illnesses. So we might get patients over sort of an acute infection, but realizing that they still have a whole um, battle with cancer to go through for upcoming years, or they still have, you know, profound disabilities and what have you. And I started to realize that the goals that I had in my head of healing were, were just too one dimensional. And I think that a lot of the patients and family members come in also with those expectations of, you know, we're in 2022, we have so much technology and research and all of it is incredible. I mean, thank God for the things we have now that help us, you know, overcome so much, but it can only help us overcome so much. Yeah. And I think that learning to shift from we're here to make it all better to mm-hmm. we can't make it all better, but we're still here. And you as the patient or families, you're also still here. And it's not where any of us want you to be or expected you to be, but we're all still here. And so how do we go on this perhaps unexpected journey of it's not the road to healing and wholeness and recovery and wellness that we all thought this was going to be, but how do we acknowledge the hurt of being here and seeing that we're going to lose a child being here and hurting because this road is just not going to lead to where we hoped, but what pains and grief can we tend to now and still not fix, you know, they're going to grieve for a very long time, but how can I still provide a balm and a soft place to land and a presence and uh, a company of you're not alone. And I'm sorry to say we can't fix the things you want to fix, but we can still be with you in the other spaces that really hurt and, mm-hmm. and be with you in that. How can we bring some comfort into that, um, even as you grieve? 
I think also like in terms of wanting to fix ourselves, fix each other (laughs) as nurses, you know, we want to make ourselves better. We want to, you know, what are all the right self-care practices and things that can just make us those superheroes again? And, you know, (laughs) your own healing, like kind of those assumptions you're making about your own fixing and your own healing. Like I have to go back to being the maybe naive or the not experienced vision version of myself in the before. And that's not possible or maybe even Mm-hmm. dare I say, desirable, yeah. because there are things and wisdoms you've learned by not maybe being able to go back to that mm-hmm. version of yourself in the beginning. I don't want to speak for you, yeah. but I'm curious if that's what you're experiencing. Yeah, no, I think you're right in that. I think that uh, naivete and ignorance, uh, you know, they're wonderful. I mean, they have a, <laughs> they have a yeah, they're, they're <laughs> useful and mm-hmm. enjoyable in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they are. And at the same time, um, you're right. I don't want to go back to that. I don't want to go off the rails the other direction and become um, excessively cynical and hardened and all of that. I want to, I want to redefine hope for us as Mm. caregivers. I want to redefine what, what it means to do this kind of work for the long haul with strength that fully acknowledges how much it hurts and fully acknowledges Mm. that um, we carry scars and there's nothing operative that we can do to ever actually get rid of those scars. And there are maybe even a bit of a limp that we walk with now that we didn't have before because we've been humbled by things that we can't fix. Witnessing so much profound loss. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I walk with a different kind of tenderness, I think, towards my patients and their family, a different kind of honesty with them, a different honesty with myself, my own family. And I don't know, just a different kind, even like my, my Christian faith, you know, is different now because um, I think it's lost a little bit of the, that, naivete that has bled over from sort of American culture of uh, fix it all and God also fixes it all to, um, you know, he doesn't always, but that doesn't mean he's not tender and it doesn't mean that he's left us and it doesn't mean that we're without hope, but to say even in like my spiritual community what it means to be strong as a Christian nurse is not to just be this overly peppy, happy-go-lucky, God is good all the time because he's going to yeah. fix it all. Um, but just, you know, he's, I still have reason to believe he's with us, but it really hurts right now too. <laughs> it's all of yeah, it. The and. Yeah, the and. The and. Yes. You know, we, we talk about that all the time on the show. and Yeah, and I think, I appreciate you kind of weaving that narrative of both sort of how you've been tasked in a way to sort of reframe what healing looks like, what healing means, Mm -hmm. especially in the spaces, of course, that you work, both for your patients and their families sometimes, but also for yourself. And really the job is to then be with Mm -hmm. as things are. I mean, that's that notion of accompanying, I think, that you're talking about. 
that is also being with the reality of a patient or family member's anger and disappointment and frustration that healing isn't looking like the healing that I thought it was going to look like, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, again, it's so hard for us because we're so, you know, I always come back to this culture. We're so binarily, like there's a solution for everything. There's an app for that. You know, I mean, this is the kind of right (laughs) world. And of course we want that. As you said, modern medicine, I mean, the things we are able to quote unquote fix or heal today we weren't 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 100 years ago. There is a lot. And yet I think some of the unnecessary suffering that we experience as patients, as families of patients, as healthcare or other kinds of healing providers is that dissonance between the expectations we have of a sort of total healing capacity and the reality. And instead of honoring and naming, like there is a gulf between those things. Mm -hmm. And so how can I alleviate suffering, whether that's palliative medicine or that's bringing your humanity to the family and saying, Mm -hmm. I wish I had a different answer and I'm grieving alongside with you, or I'm, I recognize your anger or your frustration. And just to like acknowledge the gulf Mm -hmm. between those things, I wonder is kind of, and boy, oh boy, how do you learn to do that? Nobody's teaching us how to acknowledge that gulf between. Like what, what have you discovered that if it's, whether it's sharing kind of a practical tip or tool, or what have you discovered about what it means to accompany a family in that gulf between their hopes of a healing that looked a certain way and the healing that's actually Mm -hmm. possible maybe in this Mm -hmm. case? Yeah. It's a big gulf. (laughs) It's a big golf, right? It's such a big golf. And I think you really alluded, I mean, I'm going to take kind of a macro step back for a second and then bring it back into the bedside presence. But I think it's an important perspective uh, that you alluded to if there's an app for everything. I mean, we are in technology, like everything happens now at your fingertips. It's everything is magical now. Our world is magical. You know, I mean, it's what, just uh, October 28th. If I need something for Halloween, I can pay a little extra money and get something delivered to my doorstep. Same day delivery. If I want, you know, I can solve my crisis of what do I need in the next day or two to get my life where it needs to be right now. And, you know, we, we live with, this kind of ability now. And certainly in medicine, that's the case. I mean, I see you nursing medicine, healthcare is magical, because if a patient is agitated, or um, really, really anxious or distressed, oh, there's a medicine for that. You know, you have an IV line, I'm going to go just push this in your IV and you're going to settle right down. It's magical. The parents, I mean, and I don't mean to make light of it because it's... No, I I get... Yeah, yeah. I know you're not. I know you're not. Yeah. (laughs) But there are some areas in which we have these very accessible, easy, quick solutions for aspects of our suffering. Yeah, yeah. And then that bleeds over into the expectation that don't we have something for everything? Yes. And so when we present these magical tools to our patients and family members where, oh, you gave them 
a medicine and within two minutes they were settled and comfortable. Oh, their oxygen level started to drop and this isn't always the case. But when they do see that if I just push a button on the ventilator, it can bring their oxygen level from 85% back up to the pretty 95, 98%. Well, that's magical. That's amazing. You know, you push a button, you give a medicine, you fix the problem right in front of me. And so when you're trying then to take the same family through a conversation Mm -hmm. of, yes, we have these medications that can soothe agitation, that can fix an oxygen number for a minute for a day for two days um however i can't actually fix the long-term neurological injury or however i can't actually fix the extensive damage that's been done to the patient's lungs and i think that it's such a tricky time now of being able to do things to comfort and help, but also come in and say, I need you to understand, um, I'm very grateful that we can have your child become more comfortable. I'm grateful that they don't have to be air hungry. But what I worry about is their lungs still are incredibly sick, or the brain damage is still very, very significant and not actually reversible. How to present ourselves where we can do so much. And at the same time, I need to help you understand the big picture of um, today's quick delivery isn't going to slow. Maybe the reality yeah. of uh, what's what's actually happening yeah 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 i th- i love the care and the kindness with which you even explained that kind of thinking and helping us remember why and of course it's all of our human natures and that's what's beautiful about us to mm-hmm. want the best and the solution and the fix for the people that we love i definitely had some very, you know, heated and scared and frightened conversations with doctors in the very, very short window between them finally figuring out what was, what was wrong, which was a grapefruit-sized brain tumor, and mm-hmm. him dying in my arms, which was two and a half weeks, you know. So I get the kind of calling that we have to ask for those things, but I think there's so much beauty in what you said. And even if for those of us who are maybe currently with a loved one, as we speak or recently or will be someday to recognize that our nurses and even our physicians are often grappling themselves with that disappointment of the of the gulf between what we would want to offer and do yeah. for our patients and what we are able to do yeah. and to me and this just might be my style when i've been in the presence of a caregiver a provider who brings that humanity forth, mm-hmm. like is still doing their medical job, but is also bringing the humanity of, like, I mean, not to be crass, but that this sucks, mm-hmm. you know, to like, mm-hmm. I hate that there's this gulf that we can't grapple with. That made a long-term meaningful positive impact on my grief, on my 
letting go of any guilt or shame around mm-hmm. what I did or didn't do or the decisions I made. So I just can't emphasize enough the importance of, and I'm sure the challenge for you all as medical providers to bring your professional self forward while also bringing your human self forward, because yeah. I think the the impact is profound. Mm, yeah, yeah. And it, it takes a lot of discernment and I think patience and humility too, because each family is so different. And, you know, there are the, the phrase I want to say is excessively hopeful, but that doesn't feel right. Because, you know, the, uh, (laughs) where it's, I mean, where people are maybe in sort of some denial, Mm -hmm. which is a protective, useful, by the way, neurobiologically Mm -hmm. activated Mm -hmm. response in us. But I think, is that maybe what you're kind of getting at the sort of like, Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, sort of not ready to sort of face maybe some of the realities. Yeah. 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 And I, I think that, there, there just has to be a certain patience and discernment, which I think my colleagues do a really wonderful job of. It's a real tension, though, because yeah, y- you never want to feel like you're at some point deceiving family members, yeah. um, but also recognizing that um, they're just not ready for stepping into different yeah. directions of conversations, and we need to let some of that grief just work its way, you know, and let them have some space and time to really process. And curiously, there are also other, uh, it's just everyone is so different. I mean, there was another family who we all had gotten to know for a very, very, very long time. And uh, they knew that their child uh, was at the end. And they were quite realistic about it. And at the same time, they made it explicitly clear that they did not want, and at this point, really, the entire staff knew this family because we had spent so much time with their child, that they just didn't want people coming in expressing condolences yet. They they didn't mm-hmm. want that. They wanted positive spaces in that they just they just wanted um, sweet memories and reflections uh, uh, about their child. And otherwise they wanted it limited to whatever nurse was in the room, whatever physician might be in there. Um, But they didn't want extra people coming in and saying, Hey, I'm so sorry. I heard him. So sorry. They were realistic, but they just knew what they needed. But we're clear. They were clear. Exactly. And what a gift for them. I mean, what a gift for all of you as providers, because it it took off the burden of having so much discernment, Mm -hmm. but also what a gift for them that they were able to be really clear about the sort of tone and the the energy that they wanted in the room as they were moving Mm -hmm. along this very difficult journey. Reminds me again of a conversation I just had with a guest, Myra Sack, who will, whose episode will be out by the time this one airs. But I appreciate that sort of, you know, it's not so simple as to say, bring your human self and your professional self, because each patient, mm-hmm. family and experience requires a different nuanced. And that means you're gonna get it wrong sometimes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, yeah. which, oh my gosh, <laughs> do we all just cringe at getting it wrong sometimes? Oh, but yes, <laughs> we do. Yeah. I mean, I, we do, but... oh, yeah, 
Yeah. We've all gotten it wrong. We've, uh, I've gotten, I mean, I do this for a living and I've showed up in spaces professionally and personally to offer grief support and just missed, you know, the mark of what that person needs because not everybody is really clear what they need and don't need until someone crosses the boundaries for, in the case that you just shared, the family was clear. And so it made it easier, but sometimes Mm -hmm. the individual doesn't know anyways. And so you don't really know. And then you cross the space. So also this is just to say to all of us, whether we're professional or personal caregivers or grief supporters, we all have to let go of the notion that we're going to do it perfectly or right each time. Mm -hmm. Um, And to just have some intention as we started our conversation out at the beginning today, some real intentionality about what we're doing and how we're showing up and then letting go of the fact that we're going to get it wrong. Yeah. I'm hoping to pivot a little bit as we begin to sort of move towards the end of our conversation, at least for today, because boy, oh boy, could we talk about this for for <laughs> ages. There's so much rich, important um, knowledge and wisdom here. But, you know, when I'm thinking about the conversation you had about your own retreat and sort of how you work to metabolize and uh, honor and acknowledge, you know, the grief and the hardship that you experience as an ICU nurse, but also thinking about what are the systems or the spaces in which we might do this more collectively. Mm-hmm. I think about the healing power of storytelling. You know, I had Annie Brewster, who's done the mm-hmm. Health Story Collaborative on my show before and thinking about, and of course, Rachel Rush. And I know you're very interested in narrative medicine and the power of storytelling as a healing modality. Can you help us understand or share with us again, for those of us, those listeners who aren't healthcare workers, the role of storytelling in things like the Schwartz rounds, Mm -hmm. you know, the the challenge of maybe, of course, the HIPAA compliance, which of course we want Mm -hmm. in our healthcare workers, but sort of what is the experience of Schwartz rounds? And for you kind of, how is that a tool in your own making space for grief and healing and in that space? Mm -hmm. Can you walk us through that a little bit? Yeah. I love Schwartz rounds and I love that uh, my hospital has adopted it into our regular programming. So in Schwartz rounds, they'll introduce a theme. So it could be anything like uh, the mistake I made, you know, so people talk about mistakes they made in medicine. It can be the theme of shame. It can be the theme of when personal loss comes into play if you're a caregiver, but you're also working through your own personal loss at home, if you've lost a spouse or a child or what have you. So they pick a theme and then they'll usually have three panelists. They'll invite a few people and they'll make it very multidisciplinary. So doesn't necessarily just have to be a physician or a nurse. They can have, you know, we've had dietitians, we've had housekeepers, we've had uh, just all across the board, everyone who has context, you know, in this kind of work. And each panelist will share their story, their experience around that theme. And it's usually a few minutes, very vulnerable, very honest and open. And uh, the tone set um, from the very beginning is, um, we're here to be a safe space. We're here to really come together in sort of the 
the unity of our experiences. And so they'll share each of their stories and they usually have kind of a different vantage point. And then they just, the facilitators just gently open it up to anyone in the audience to share their own stories, whether it's sort of in light of what they heard from the panelists or just related to the theme in general. And people tend to keep patient identifiers out as much as possible there. I think it's understood when it's within the context of the hospital world. We will, I think we, we walk a fine line there of making sure that we protect privacy, but we also talk a little bit more openly about patient cases yeah, yeah, than we would to sort of a friend at home. So, and it's really beautiful because you see people both in the panel and then in the audience who you wouldn't necessarily expect. And this kind of takes down that whole superhero mentality where you see, oh my gosh, this is the director of patient care services, or this is the head attending of the GI department or what have you. And they're there. This is the top surgeon that I assumed never questions anything about their work. Yeah. Yeah. And they're talking about that medical error that they made, you know, or they're talking about the time they didn't get it right in the conversation they had uh, with grief and and a family member. And, and you start to humanize one another, you take each other down from the pedestals, and then you, as the participant, lose that pressure of, well, everyone else is a top performer and always getting it right. And you realize, no, actually everyone's human. And so I can now also share my humanity. I can share my story. Mm-hmm. And there's a real comfort, I think, that comes from those those spaces. It's interesting because Schwartz Rounds, though, tends to be self-selecting in its audience. And so it's the people who tend to already be keen to that kind of uh conversation processing and self-reflection and yeah (laughs) all of that um but i think that uh the influence it has on the overall culture of the hospital still is an important shift and as people see it being practiced and start to invite others in it starts to change the culture and I think the hope is that it grows from the self-selected group into people who would maybe be less, who would be reluctant, but got invited and were pleasantly surprised. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's a hard line. If you're, if you're not naturally inclined to be in that sort of humility, maybe self-reflective kind of healing seeking space, it can be hard because I can imagine, I mean, I've sort of always been that kind of person, just again, not surprising mm-hmm. social worker here, but, <laughs> um, but I think to your point, I hope, as you said, that there's some sort of subtle shifts in the culture that might bring more people into the circle, because if you've spent a career or, you know, again, in some ways our surgeons have to be kind of you know, very narrowly focused and very sort of tightly controlled. And so Mm -hmm. it's hard to sort of open the dial even just a little bit because it feels very like, Mm -hmm. is everything that I've created, you know, in my ego Mm -hmm. and my story and my being going to come, come crumbling. Yeah. Yeah. Without kind of pointing out 
people's specific stories. Can you think about, is there a way to share sort of any aha moments you had by either being in the audience or if you've ever been in a panel that was like you took out of that room and back into your life, both as a griever, as a caregiver, maybe even back into your professional life, like sort of a a lesson that came from from being a part of this power of storytelling? Mm. Sort of generally could be, or even a specific example. Yeah. I I remember a uh, physician um, who I I was actually on the panel um, at a Schwartz round, and the theme um, was grief. And I remember as we opened it up to the audience, there was a physician who was in the audience, and I didn't I hadn't realized that he was attending until he asked for the microphone to share his own story, and uh, I was surprised. He was, again, just, I always saw him as this kind of stoic, very thoughtful, but also stoic and kind of always okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And he started to share about some of his personal struggles with uh, feeling at times overwhelmed by grief and trying to figure out how to balance sort of his own role as a father at home. And um, similarly to me as a mom of just feeling like I always had to be taking care of everyone else, but didn't know exactly where and how to take care of myself. And I think that uh, after I heard him share, there was just sort of this mental shift in me of, first of all, that, um, again, sort of the relief and the acknowledgement of, oh, we're all human. And also just a little shift of how can I, how can I check in with my colleagues mm-hmm. a little bit better? Um, this physician that I thought was just always okay, you know, how can I check in when I know that the cases we're dealing with in our unit one particular week are just especially heavy, or I know that he or anyone else really has come out of a room that, um, yeah, has a dying child or what have you. And to not be so quick for myself to assume that everyone's okay. Yeah. And again, just that shift in culture of um, how can, how can we not always make it feel like we just all keep going on our way <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. And just operate out of assumptions rather than, um, a little more grace, a little more gentleness. Um, yeah. I love that. I, I mean, the world would be a better place with a little more grace and a little more gentleness, I think. Yeah. And to your point, sort of, I love the invitation that you took from that experience, which I think, you know, is an invitation for all of us listening here today, which is, you know, while we can't sort of shift the culture or even systems writ large, though, I mean, Mm. I call myself a grief activist and I'm on a mission to do that. How Mm. we do it is exactly what you said, which is I'm going to soften my assumptions that my colleague has it together or is okay. And maybe I'm going to bring them a donut or a cup of coffee, Mm -hmm. or I'm going to give them a knowing look, or I'm going to just ask them the question, like, do you need a minute? Or, Mm -hmm. you know, do you want to process what happened? And if we do that little by little, to mm-hmm. me, that's how you change the culture, you know, it's just yeah. making safe space for other people, as you said, to know that you don't have to have it all together all the time. Yeah. 
you know, yeah. by, by being vulnerable about your own or by checking in with other people and giving them sort of permission to take the cape off for a minute. Yeah. 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 I love that. <laughs> oh, Wei Wen, this has been an absolutely incredible conversation today. I so appreciate you walking us um, through this journey, through this experience of professional grief and grief in healthcare and medical spaces and just the wisdom that you've learned and, and shared with mm-hmm. us today. Thank you so much for your time. I know this won't be our last conversation and I'm definitely going to drop all of your beautiful writing and your TED talk mm-hmm. in the show notes so that our listeners can hear from you and follow your work. But I just want to say thank you for this conversation today. Thank you for opening up the space to talk about these really important topics. I I hold such high regard for the work that you do, for the work that my colleagues do. And I just think it's so important for us to um, allow ourselves to be human over hero. Yeah. And sometimes we need to be the heroes, but there's also got to be that space to be all of who we are, which is yeah. human. <laughs> yeah. I love that to be human over hero. Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to connecting with you again. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I want to give a shout out to Guile Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show and to the team at StudioPod for helping me produce it. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart. <laughs>